Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, the great Christian thinkers. And we have finally arrived at that point where we can talk about one St. Unipro Sarah. We have been spending a lot of time in the uh, 17th and 18th century with some Frenchmen, and now we have the opportunity to follow through on a promise I think I made back in September. <laughs> you know, back in September, we talked about uh, spending some time with St. Unipro Sarah, and it just didn't work out. I know I wanted to talk about him within the time frame of the 18th century where we find him, so that time has finally arrived. And I am most excited this evening because I do have a real special guest with me, someone that I was hoping to get, and that is Father Ken Laveroni. He is the pastor at St. Francis of Assisi Parish in uh, downtown Sacramento. So, Father Ken, it is great to have you with me this evening. It's great to be with you, Joe. Um, this is a, a pleasure to be able to share with your listening audience uh, something about the St. Junipero Serra, the newest mm-hmm. Um, canonized saint, uh, the first canonized saint on American soil, um, and one of the first to uh, touch the uh, western western uh, coast of California, uh, to touch the soil there with the good, good news of Jesus Christ in, in California, in Alta California, as we. So it's uh, it's wonderful to be here. I um I have some have had a long interest in the missions itself, the mission period. Uh, I was born and raised uh, in. Mission at Mission San Juan Batista uh, near Monterey, and uh, my family has been there since the uh, 18, or very very early 1800s. And uh, in fact, were Spanish soldiers that came with uh, the Spanish expeditions and with this uh, with Sarah to California to San Francisco and Monterey Bay back in the uh, late 1700s. So um, I've had an interest since I was a child, being grown having grown up around Mission San Juan Batista, baptized there and ordained there, and, uh, and my family has been part of that community for over 200 years. Uh, I was fortunate uh, in the last 10 years as a Franciscan prior to work on the, uh, the, the uh, committee for the cause of the canonization of Father Sarah uh, as a canon lawyer, because it is a canonical process um, to bring about the canonization of an individual. Canonization, as you know, is someone who is recognized officially by the Church as a, a person of holiness, of goodness, mm-hmm. and has done great things to bring the, the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to people, especially as an evangelizer. And that's exactly what uh, Sarah was. You know, it's hard, diff- hard to uh, untangle the uh, role of Sarah as an evangelizer and his role as a colonizer. Mm-hmm. The Church and the Spanish government were were very deeply involved with one another in, in their colonization efforts. And, uh, and so Sarah's primary intent was not colonization. His primary intent was evangelization, to bring the gospel. Unfortunately, there were negative effects that came with colonization, and some would consider evangelization also. But what we know about Sarah, uh, first of all, is, uh, you know, he was born in the early 1700s and on the small island of 
uh, Mallorca, in the Mediterranean, uh, in a small village. His family was a uh, probably a lower, what we considered lower middle class today. They were a farming family. And he was raised within a Franciscan parish and baptized in the Franciscan church in the small village of, of Petra, in the center of, 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 uh, of Mallorca. Um, because of his influence of the, of the Franciscans since he was a child, as it was the same for myself, uh, their influence in my life, um, he was uh, highly motivated to, to seek and to, to learn more about the evangelization efforts, especially in the New World, with his uh, predecessor Franciscans who came to the New World in uh, South America and Mexico um, to bring the good news, to bring the gospel to these places. Mm. So he eventually entered the Franciscan order in the big city of Palma de Mallorca, and uh, was ordained a priest, uh, and then was asked to be a professor of, of uh, a great medieval uh, philosopher and theologian, Blessed John Duns Scotus. Yeah. Uh, Scotus was a, took the, the theology and philosophy of St. Bonaventure, a, a medieval uh, doctor of the Church who developed the, the mind of, uh, theological mind of St. Francis of Assisi, and Scotus kind of elaborated further and further on Bonaventure's notion of, of, of the scriptures and of divine inspiration, and based on what, um, uh, what uh, Bonaventure had taken from, from Francis of Assisi. So what we have here, then, is a man who is uh, imbued with, with Scotistic theology and philosophy. In fact, he was appointed the chair of the Scotistic uh, school at the university, Lulian University in, in Palma. And just in a quick view of Scotus, Scotus saw every human being, every creature, as blessed and unique and holy in the sight of God, Mm. in the eyes of God. Mm. And so Francis, or rather, St. Nipper was very much, that was part of his spiritual imagination, that all creation was good, all creation was holy, all creation was unique in the eyes of God, and that as Francis, St. Francis of Assisi said himself, we are all brothers and sisters, Mm. all of creation is brothers and sisters, because God is Father and Creator of all. Mm. This was a very important aspect of Scotus's spiritual imagination, what he taught in while he was a professor. So, Father, could you say that Sarah's familiarity with Don Scotus had a large part to play in him um, coming out to the New World? <clears throat> I get the question on the radio sometimes, Joe, why do we study uh, certain saints, certain figures, and I often say, you know, to come to understand, say, what a Thomas Aquinas is about or St. Augustine is about, is to come to understand better, especially in their doctrine, the person of Jesus Christ. And the natural outgrowth of that is um, to be on fire for God and, and to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Would you say, Father, that it, that is the case with Father Sarah as it relates to Blessed Duns Scotus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we know, St. Francis of Assisi, of any of the saints. Uh, he's one of the most popular saints in all of the world since the sure. middle, uh, medieval period, since the Middle Ages, um, was alive with the Spirit of God, was alive with, this, with, the, 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 with the crucified Lord, even to the, to the point that he manifested the wounds of Jesus mm. uh, close to his death. So he was very much alive with this, this Spirit. And Bonaventure took this and developed it, St. Bonaventure, and Blessed John Scotus took this even further in terms of what does this mean to be alive in the Spirit of God. Mm. So, as, a, as an expert, if you want to call it, and as one who was well-versed in a very complicated uh, 
theology and philosophy of Blessed John, John Duns Scotus. He's very, very difficult to read yes, um, yes. for most for any of us today. But St. Uh, Junipero studied that deeply and was, it was very much became part of who he was. In fact, his motivation in, in, his, in his, the last few homilies, a sermon that he gave to the Poor Clare Sisters in Mallorca so, shortly before he came to the New World was, come and taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Mm. Come and taste and see. And it was an invitation, not a, a demand, an obligation, sure, but an invitation sure. to come and see the goodness and taste the goodness of the Lord. So, as a professor, he had this inkling after so many or yearning after several years that, you know, I'm teaching those who know about the Lord. I desire to be like St. Paul and to go to the Gentiles and to proclaim that goodness, to invite others who have never heard of the goodness and the taste of the Lord, to share that good news, that message with them. Hmm. So that was, that was Sarah's primary motivation of coming to the New World. Amen. And he saw other, his his, his, his uh, ancestors of the missionary spirit of his Franciscan brothers uh, a century or so before, two centuries, a century and a half before, coming to the New World, and those stories were brought back to Spain, and he, and he heard those stories. And there was a, a, one of his, his heroes, if you want to call it that, was a, was a Spanish nun by the name of Sister Maria Agrajera. Hmm. And she, she would have these visions, now whether you believe it or not, but very interesting, she'd have these visions of Franciscans going to the New World in their Franciscan habits, and she would be there in her Franciscan sister habit, hmm. proclaiming the good news, and the Indian, the Native people, just swarmed to them, just like people swarmed to, to, to Jesus and to St. Paul and the Apostles and their teaching. They swarmed to him, and they responded to what they had to say. So hmm. this was in the imagination of Sarah. Hmm. So Sarah was considering this, and a, a former student of his... Um, Father Juan Crespi, had come to him as he was praying about this and says, you know, my brother Junipero, he says, I had, a, I had this inkling, this yearning the last few months to, to go to the New World, but, I, you know, and Sarah says, I can't believe it, because I was, I've been thinking the same thing, but I, was, I needed some, a companion to go with. Mm. And so they decided to, together to go to the New World um, to do exactly that, to bring the good news to the Gentiles. And I use the word Gentiles, that's the same word that St. Paul used sure, when he sure. brings the good news to the yeah. Gentiles. Sarah had some connection there with Paul, because when he first came to the New World, he arrived in the Sierra Gorda, uh, part of Mexico, near Caretero, and he began preaching there. But he was preaching to Native people there that had were first and second generation uh, Christians. They had already heard the good news, and he did his thing for several years there, between there and Caretero, Mexico City, as, as a teacher, as a professor there also, as a preacher, um, as an evangelizer, but he was not satisfied because of the fact that these people had already heard the good news. He was continuing what had already begun. So when word came out um, that, the, that the Spanish government and, and uh, the papacy in, in, in Rome were requesting the Jesuits to withdraw from Baja California, where they had been missionized, been missionaries for several years. They were being called back to Spain, and where the whole Jesuit order was eventually suppressed. And I believe it was by a Franciscan pope, ironically. <laughs> um, I think the only Franciscan pope yeah. at that time, other than our Pope Francis now, who was a Jesuit and a Franciscan, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> Jesuit, a Jesuit mind and a Franciscan heart. Um, he... Uh, uh, when those missions became vacant, 
it was announced that they needed Franciscans to fill in the void, and so so Junipero uh, immediately volunteered with about a half dozen other friars. Took a took a ship across the from San Blas and uh, and uh, near Manzanillo and Mexico, what we know as Mexico today, over to Loretero on the, the Baja Peninsula, Baja California Peninsula, and began to take to fulfill to fill those uh, the missionary role that the Jesuits had. As they began to move north, he discovered that, you know, i got to keep going. And the Spanish government invited him to keep going. Also because the Russians, it was rumored that the Russians who had, who had occupied Alaska and that part of the world were moving south. Mm. And they were, the Spanish government was, uh, was in fear of losing their, their, their hold that they had uh, on, the, on the minerals and, and other issues and land in uh, Baja California and Mexico. So... Sarah went forward, kind of in line with the the desire of the uh, the colonial government of Spain. But more importantly, he, this was his opportunity to enter into the Gentile territory, where the, where the gospel had never been heard before. Hmm. And it was very interesting when he first encountered encountered the Gentile, um, what he considered the Gentile Native Americans, just south of what we know as San Diego today. He was absolutely overwhelmed. He says in his writings, it is very clear that. He was so impressed with these people. He felt like he stated in his, his his diaries, "I have come into Eden. I have discovered the, the the beauty of God's creation. I have seen it for the first time in my life." This wow. what he saw as simple and innocent and pure. Wow! So he deeply respected what he saw. He was deeply moved by what he saw. Mm. Eventually, they moved into San, moved a little bit further north, and established the mission of San Diego, the first mission. And a presidio there, a small um, um, fort with some uh, maybe half a dozen Spanish soldiers. They then, within uh, a year or so, within less than a year, uh, went to uh, to Monterey Bay and discovered the, and, and formed the uh, built the presidio there and the what is now the cathedral of the diocese of Monterey, the Royal Presidio Chapel. But what happened? Was that Sarah began to see the the abuse that these young Spanish soldiers and the military authorities began inflicting <clears throat> upon the Indians, the Native Americans, the Gentile people, and um, and the mission system while they were at the Presidio of Monterey. Mm. So he says he told the commandant, the, the the main, the captain there, said, "I'm I cannot tolerate this anymore. You are not." You are abusing the Indian people, and I am moving the mission. I'm building uh, building a new mission where the Indians reside on the Carmel River, where the Carmel River empties into the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. which is now Mission San Carlos, the Carmelo, the Carmel Mission. Yeah. So it was there, but he, Sarah constantly was in dispute over the way the, the Indians were treated by the um, the military, by the way uh, the Spanish imposed their rule upon the missions. In fact, he made two trips to Mexico City to talk to the Viceroy in these early mission days to get a document, to get some test, to get some um, authority to to overturn this this uh, the, the, the civil authority as well as to make sure the missions were not situated near the presidios where the Indians would be in danger. Mm. So he was very very much concerned for the welfare of the Indian people. Mm. You know, the critics say that, before I say that, while he was in uh, Mexico on one of these trips, he 
the Viceroy established a, a memorandum, if we want to call it that today, a document on how the Indians were to be respected and treated in the world. Mm. So that was something that was very positive that Sarah accomplished that many don't uh, take too much account of. Yeah, but yeah. in in the um, as as the missions began to be founded, as we know, Sarah himself was responsible for founding nine of the twenty-one missions, um, and uh, and in those missions he had uh, somewhat authority, uh, somewhat a great deal of authority, and con- continued continued to fight and to battle the, the, the military and the, uh, the civil authorities. He was very adamant that missions should not be, that Pueblos, I should say, Pueblos should not be founded near, near the mission, because he was fearful that the Native people would be abused and that their new faith would be um, uh, brought into uh, difficulty because of the civilian Spanish uh, um, environment. So, um, you know, for instance, the Pueblo of San Jose, where one of my ancestors was one of the first settlers there, was near Santa Clara Mission, and he vehemently, Sarah vehemently disagreed with that. You know, his mind was that they should not be building near the missions. Ironically, it's around these missions of California that the great cities of Los Angeles, Monterey, San Francisco, (laughs) San Diego, these great cities formed around those missions. That was not his, his intention. Now, the critics are, there are several critics out there. They say that, you know, there are people who want Sarah canonized for various reasons. You know, that he enslaved the Indians, that he forced baptism upon them, that, the, that he approved and inflicted physical abuse and death upon the Indians, um, you know, that he was rough on them, that he held them uh, captive in the mission properties. I think we have to look at a bigger picture there, and a little bit what's behind that, rather than what happened or didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Sarah baptized those who chose to be baptized. He never forced, contrary to Scotus, contrary to Franciscus, contrary to what he was about at that time. He never forced baptisms mm-hmm. onto anyone. He invited them to baptism. After some time, if they requested it, then they entered into baptism. And our theology now, and theology then, is that baptism would take on a new life. We, we, we leave behind the whole life. Mm-hmm. We're dressed in Christ. Mm. So his concern was that if the newly baptized, called the neophytes, if the neophytes would return to their villages, they would be returned to the old ways until they were so um, uh, imbued with the, with this, with the Christianity that they were able to resist the, the, the what they left behind. Mm. So yes, Sarah really encouraged people to stay in the mission. He also encouraged the, the, the women to stay within the mission compound, because he was afraid not so much that they would uh, you know go back to their villages, which that was probably part of it, but they were also was a, a form of protection from the, from the military and those other civilians that were in the area. So he was he was he had concern for the people. It was not considered a punishment by today's standards. That may be considered um, unjust and uh, um, you know servitude. But that was not at all his mind. You know, it's very easy for us to impose a 21st century mind and ethic on on something that happened in the early mid 18th century. It was a different time, mm-hmm. different world. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is one document that uh, states that Sarah approved flogging of those that were, were disobedient. It was a means of discipline. 
But we have to also consider that that even the military, yeah. as well as yeah. others of the of that time, yeah. were flogged in a, as a form of discipline. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily something that was that the Indians were uh, singled out to be, be flogged, but it was a common form of discipline. The friars received it. If they were, you know, if they violated their obedience. The, um, the the military, the sailors, and everyday people. This was a common form of. Of, of, of discipline. I'm not condoning it. It doesn't fit today, but we have to remember this was what was popularly done at that particular time in history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, yes, he did condone it as a mild, and he says in the document, as a mild, mildly as a form of discipline. Mm-hmm. It was not as a form of, of coercion. Sarah never referred, never in any of his writings, uh, referred to the Native people as savages or as inhuman, or as slaves. He also always considered them as his, his spiritual children, as the Gentiles. And so he saw himself as a, as a firm father figure, just as he was raised in Spain with a firm father figure, as that was the, that was the way in which parenting occurred in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Again, very different than the 21st century, but that's what happened in the 18th century. So he did what he only knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often say here on Monday evening that if we are going to know uh, the great Christian thinkers and, and the saints for who they are, we ought to appreciate the time period that they come to us, because it is appreciating that time period that we're going to not only um, get to better know the saint, but at the same time understand and appreciate what made them a saint, right? Because we are all called huh, um, into our particular place and time, and that is what defines us out from our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, Father, um, you were intimately involved with the canonization process, and I thought it'd be good for our listening audience if, if they can hear about that involvement and uh, how that evolved um, to the actual canonization day. Sure. Um, I'd like to preface this by saying, when the announcement was made um, uh, on January 19, 2015, it came as a complete surprise to me, who had been working on this, Mm. Uh, the cause for 10 years, uh, and the California bishops, it was absolute, nobody expected it. And if the context of the announcement was that Pope Francis, on January 19th, announced this when he was leaving um, Sri Lanka on an airplane in his press conference, that he, as he always does now, yeah. <laughs> on, in journey, okay? Yeah. And you, know, you never know what's going to come up. No. <laughs> you no, really don't. Right? <laughs> he was on his way to the Philippines after canonizing a great, uh, evangelizer of the Sri Lankan people who had come from India. Mm. And in this discussion about this, uh, this this great evangelizer that he had just canonized, he kind of has a side comment and, and said, by the way, I intend to canonize when I come to the United States, the eastern United States in September, uh, Junipero Serra, who is also the great evangelizer of the West, uh. of the of the, of the West Coast huh. of California. Interesting. So that's how it came about. It, was, it came about as a complete surprise. We know we knew that those are working on this cause for over seventy years here in uh, the Franciscans in California. Huh. Um, we knew that there was one more miracle needed because there was a miracle back in the um, late eighties, prior to his beatification, um, that was approved by Rome, and that's what moved him forward to beatification to be blessed. But we've been working for since then, since you know nineteen eighty nine, nineteen eighty, so a good um, what twenty years or thirty years on another miracle. Uh, and when this was announced, we said, there's no miracle. And the Pope 
Pope, the Pope can break the rules. So, in a sense, he dispensed, the Pope dispensed this, the necessity for this second miracle because of the greatness and the devotion of people to Sarah. So what had happened then, when that was announced, the, the Franciscans here said, you know, those of us working on the causes, we got to to inter, to to interact with the California bishops, because this is bigger than us. It's going to affect all of California. Oh, sure, sure. So myself uh, and Father Mel Juricic, who also had, had been working on the, the cause for these many years, um, flew to Rome to meet with the, the postulator general, which is the the Franciscan in, in, in Rome in charge of canonization of saints, the the prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the, uh, for the I'm sorry for the for the um, cause of the saints, uh, Cardinal Amato and Mr. Ken Hackett, who is the um, um, American ambassador to the Vatican. We met with those three men um, to find out exactly what they knew, you know, where we were going with this, what we had to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, at that point, Father Mel and I were appointed co-vice postulators, which means we were the, the two people on the ground in California that would work directly in having the canonization or making the canonization uh, happen. And so prior to that, it had been Father John Bond and the two of us had been working with him as well as with uh, seven, uh, two or three, four other people. And... Um, uh, because of his ill health, we were appointed co-vice postulators to do what he could no longer do because of his age and his health. We returned from from Rome. We uh, kind of caucused um, with uh, Mr. Andy Galvin, who had worked on this cause for over 30 years, who happens to be uh, an Ohlone Indian mm. um, from uh, mission uh, between Mission San Francisco, Mission Dolores, and um, Mission, San, mission San Jose in Fremont. Um, we caught, the three of us got together and said, you know, what are some things that we need to address with the California bishops to um, make this to be a positive event? Because we knew that there was going to be strong criticism. Yeah. So we got on the agenda for the California bishops meeting here in Sacramento. Uh, we presented them with um, about five or six uh, things that we needed to do jointly, not the cause, not the bishops. We needed to work together and to have a common voice here. One was that we had to um, seriously look at the issues. Uh, we had another was we had to get a a, a good uh, publicist to help us with that, and a public relations people to help us uh, define these issues and to word them in such a way that they would bring healing rather than separation or right. more division. And um, we said, you know, the California missions need uh, were, were built as homes for the Indians. They are content, They need to still can be the homes for the Indians. So to, up till recently, the Indians had to, if they wanted to come to the burial grounds of their ancestors, they had to pay a fee to get into the museum. That was an insult. The mm. Indians now have a free access to to pay tribute to their ancestors in the California Mission cemeteries. We said the California fourth grade curriculum, uh, where they study the missions in Catholic schools yeah, as well as yeah. public schools, but in Catholic schools we have to present a greater objective picture. And we've set up with the bishops, the committees, to study the curriculum and to revise in such a way that mm. the American, the Native Americans, uh, the Franciscans, the Church, has a much more objective perspective, because now we simply have the, we use the textbooks of the state. Sure. And if the textbook of the state wants to use what we end up coming up with, that's fine. But we're, we're aiming at the Catholic school curriculum. We also said that the uh, mission museums need to represent the California mission tribes or the mission the, the tribes that were at the, located in and around the mission rather than using symbols and statements and artifacts 
that have nothing to do with those local tribes. Huh. So that is in the process of happening right now. Several of the mission museums have been uh, reviewed, and our changes are taking place. Hmm. And we we were very confident that we would invite um, two representatives from each of the California missions that Sarah had founded to attend, if they choose, and for them to choose uh, representatives of their local tribes and bands to two from each each mission to represent their, their group at the canonization. This was all paid for by the by the um, the cause for Nipper Osera. And fortunately, we were able to set up a very uh, a meeting with them where they greeted the Pope and has said a few words with him and then um, gave him gifts yeah. uh, there at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. My part in the in the canonization itself, that we, myself and Father Mel, we worked with the, uh, the, the liturgical committee at the National Shrine of the Washington, D.C., with the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., and with the director, executive director of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So with these three three entities, um, and uh, and ourselves, we made sure certain things in the ceremony were present, certain things were able to happen. For instance, the first reading in the Mass was uh, uh, read by an, Ol- an Ohlone descendant, hmm. and he read it, <clears throat> excuse me, he read it in the Ohlone language, Turchenio. That was the first time this has ever happened in any history, wow. that a, a native language of California Indians has been hmm. used in a liturgy. Wow. Um and uh, I was I was fortunate and honored to be able to present to read the biography of, of Father Sarah, a short biography to Pope Francis in Spanish uh, during the canonization, and then afterwards, um, after the end of the canonization ceremony itself, which was the first part of the mass in Washington D.C., uh, myself and Father Mel, my co-vice postulator, Father Gianni from Rome, um, the general postulator, and Cardinal World, the Archbishop of. Washington, D.C., all were uh, permitted to go up and greet Pope Francis and to say, speak a few words to him, mm. um, which was uh, a great honor. I mean, yeah. the, the crowd there was electric, and mm. the Native Americans attended, and they were excited about being able to be in that presence and, and to celebrate uh, the canonization of this man, even though they were skeptical about this. And yeah. they still remain to be skeptical, but they recognized at this point that this was an honor to them. The graces that occurred out of this, and I know our time is running short, but the graces that occurred that we would have never entered into dialogue with the Native American tribes of the, that are around the California missions today if, if this never would have occurred. Mm. Mm. The, the bishops of California, the Franciscan friars, would have continued, and the, and the Native Americans would have continued in their separate corners. Mm. But mm. this has brought us together, so there's a grace out of that. Yeah, there's God's... a grace... Yeah, God's God's ways are so unconventional, are they not? <laughs> well, and surprise, you know, I yeah. mean, things happen. Yeah, um, our our awareness now of the, the the American bishops or California bishops and the Franciscan friars aware of the culture of the Native Americans, especially those in and around the missions today, has grown. We're learning a great deal. Hmm. Um, the museums would have never been revised. The curriculum would have never been revised. Um, you know, the missions would have never been opened up to the to the people. To come in, to be openly enter into their former homes as their homes today, mm. the places where they can come and worship uh, and, and 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 pay tribute to their ancestors. So these are and these are just a few of the graces that we have recognized that have come out of this very surprising, unexpected announcement 
of Pope Francis on January 19, mm. 2015. So let me ask you this, Father. You know, in, in those big events in our life, we ask the question, where were you? Let me ask you on January 19th, where were you? And well, what were you doing of, here that It's ironic. I was uh, the vicar provincial at that time. I just uh, finished the, my term of that office in January a couple months ago. And uh, I was at a provincial council meeting, ironically, at Sarah Retreat House, uh, uh, in Southern California. Uh, when I heard it, the radio, my radio went off about six in the morning, mm. and I thought I was half asleep when I heard the announcement. Thought and you I, were dreaming. I, I kind of <laughs> woke up, shook my head, <laughs> yeah. and I thought, and then it came on again, you know, a half hour or so later, and I said, my gosh, I can't believe this. And we went down to breakfast. I said, anybody here? They said, yes, can you believe it? So uh, that's where I was. Uh, mm. It was in my, in my, uh, my room <laughs> at their retreat house in Southern California. Wow. Father, any closing thoughts? You know, I'm looking down at my notes. Padre Sarah had this, St. Nipro Sarah had this quote, always forward, never back, something that... Siempre adelante, mm. nunca atrás. In, in just closing, could you speak to that? Because I, I do think this was so much of what he was about. Sure. Sarah planted the seed of faith mm. in Alta California, where we are today. And I think, especially as Franciscans, uh, we have an obligation to continue the legacy of St. Junipero Serra, of inviting people to come and taste the goodness of the Lord. Despite mm. all the problems in the Church, despite all the controversies over Sarah, despite the problems in the world today, mm. our role, as Sarah demonstrated to us, and this is another grace, we have an, a, an example of what it means to invite people to come and see and taste the goodness of the Lord. And that's an invitation. Mm. and to invite people into that relationship with Jesus, to taste and to see God's goodness around us. And that's very Franciscan. Sarah mm. was a very, very much a Franciscan prior. Mm. And I think that's the legacy, and we've shared that, and we have Franciscan sisters in California today, we have Franciscan, uh, secular Franciscans throughout California, um, and it's, they're all part of the Franciscan family. Sarah was completely uh, aware of all these three major groups of the Franciscan family, and his desire, I would think, would be to continue the, the good work that he began. Mm. Amen. Well, Father, thank you for all that you have shared. <laughs> you know, we can probably talk about Sadie Nipro Sarah for a couple hours at least. And above all else, Father, just thank you for the gift of your yes to your vocation, to your Franciscan vocation, and certainly what you mean to uh, the people you minister to. It really was a joy for me uh, to have you here on Seeds of Truth, and I know many of our listeners are grateful. So uh, thank you again. I, I, I do appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. It's my pr privilege to be with you today. Father, if you can uh, close us with uh, a sure. prayer, that would be great. So we give glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. St. Junipero Serra, pray for, for us. us.